Welcome to Resilient Schools. Today I am so excited to have Dr. Elaine Harper on the program. She is an experienced teacher, counselor, and leader in the areas of education and mental health. Dr. Harper is the former Educational Services Director for Positive Education Program in Cleveland, Ohio. She serves people by teaching, facilitating, coaching, and mentoring individuals, teams, and schools and organizations who work with children and adolescents presenting emotional and behavioral challenges. Dr. Harper earned her doctorate degree in urban education with specialization in learning and development from Cleveland State University and her doctoral research centered on emotional learning and bibliotherapy. Now, bibliotherapy is an area that is really fascinating and Elaine, welcome to Transformative Principle First. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Jethro, for having me. It's great to be here. Yes. Can you give us a brief idea of what bibliotherapy is? Because it's something that I hadn't heard about before I met you. Excellent. Well, bibliotherapy comes from two Greek words, biblio, which is biblio, and therapevo, which means to heal. So essentially, bibliotherapy is using the vehicle of literature and books to heal. Around different, around different issues, whether they're clinical issues or developmental issues. Yeah, I, I love that. And I know the power of healing through literature, and I think that it's so powerful. So many lessons we can take away from things that we read and how they, they impact the characters and how we can apply them to our lives as well. And that was one of my favorite parts of being an English teacher is being able to talk about those things with kids as we as we studied things. So we're not going to talk about bibliotherapy today because we're going to talk about some other stuff. And one of the things that you mentioned to me is that change is loss. And when I went to a conference recently, they talked about really not just recognizing that that's the case, but actually celebrating the things that we lose. And I was talking with a teacher who was taking over a class in the middle of the year and it was really challenging and I said because I went to this conference and learned it I said you really should take the opportunity to celebrate and appreciate what that teacher had done with those kids for the first half of the year and I said you don't need to have any ego in it because it's not about you. It's about giving them space to appreciate what that woman has done. And even though it's mm -hmm. awkward that she's not there anymore and all that, it's still important for you to do that. Why is change being lost such a, such a big deal that we often overlook? I think that it's not really in the forefronts of our mind that anytime we're looking to change, whether it's how we practice our leadership or our organizations, our schools, our initiatives, um, that the fact that when you have to change something, you, you figure you just have to change it. But behind the scenes, what's happening is in order for the change to happen, we have to lose something in the process. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I, I like how you bring that right to the front that in order to change something, something has to be lost because otherwise it wouldn't be changed, right? So this is something that there are a lot of things that we that we do in education. We talk about change management and things like that. But why don't we pay more attention to the other aspects of change and leadership in education? What's preventing us from getting there? 
I think there are so many competing priorities right now, Jethro, that, you know, we've got academic uh, programming, we've got curriculum, we've got test mandates from coming from the state and different types of compliance issues coming from Ohio or whatever state department of education you have that it sometimes unfortunately gets, gets moved to the back burner. Yeah, so you talk a lot about this idea of having a secondary expertise as a school leader on mental health awareness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. You know, as principals, you know, when you and I went to principal school, there really was no part in the curriculum that talked about how to bring mental wellness into your schools and how to recognize trauma and how to work with discipline from a restorative practices point of view. Those are not typically things that we're learning in principal school. So right now, I think there's a need because of the context, not only because of the pandemic, because that's really exaggerated the, the existing problems previously, but we need to bring that information, that education to instructional leaders so that they can manage all that's happening in schools right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there is a lot going on in schools. There actually always has been going on a lot going on in schools and that's right and this need has been there for a long time um so tell us about some of the things that we should understand the, the challenge is is whenever i train schools on trauma or as i call them resilient schools i a lot of people are concerned about walking out feeling like they need to be experts in that field and that's not what you're saying, though. You're not saying that you need to be an expert, that you need to have a secondary expertise. What's the difference between being an expert and having a secondary expertise? Well, I think it's like, for example, when you have a, a physician, per se, who has an expertise in doing the work of a general practitioner, working in a hospital, and doing the direct service work, when that individual, say when that physician moves to a different position and they become now the supervisor or a chief of a department, they may not have learned the leadership aspect. They have the technical knowledge around their position and what they do, but they've never been trained in that other expertise, which has to do with leadership and knowing how to motivate teams yeah, this is really fascinating because there is a technician aspect to our work as school leaders, and then there is a leadership aspect to our work as school leaders. And every every school leader knows that if you haven't been a teacher, then you don't have credibility with staff, and you have to work hard to build that credibility. 100%. And the challenge there is that with that credibility, you're really good at the technician stuff. That's what teachers want to hear. But then if you're also not good at the leadership aspect that you brought up, then you're, you're going to be sunk as well. Um, mm -hmm. what, what's your, th what are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. You know, there is tremendous power in having the leader, having been a teacher, because it's really hard for teachers to look to a leader that doesn't have the credibility of having been in the trenches, as they say. So it's, it's really important.
tell us about how you go about learning these other things because they don't they don't come naturally they don't always teach them in our graduate programs so how do you suggest people learn them in a way that is actually attainable and not just going and getting another degree right that's not the purpose here absolutely we're not trying to get another degree nobody has time or money to do that right now so but i think that there are ways where through coaching through mentoring through professional development there are some key pieces of both trauma-informed care and leading in a trauma-informed way that can help principals be able to bring this into their into their knowledge into their knowledge base and develop expertise in that so there are essentially three areas to to pay attention to for the for the leader to pay attention to that can enhance and really elevate being an effective principal the first thing we have we have students, we have staffs, and we have systems, right? All of those things make up the, the little universe um, of a school community. So with the students and paying attention to the students, knowing what trauma-informed teaching looks like, what does that mean? Um, what does trauma-informed teaching practices mean? What does social and emotional learning mean? And how do we bring those things as part of the instruction for students? So that's the first thing, is being able to hone in on the needs of the students that aren't necessarily only academic, but also have to do with their mental well-being. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second, because trauma-informed gets bandied about quite a bit and there's a lot there's a lot to it which involves understanding the brain understanding trauma understanding stress responses and all that kind of stuff is it necessary to know all of that to be a quote-unquote trauma-informed teacher i think being a trauma-informed teacher or being a trauma-informed leader is an ongoing process it is not going to a one-hour workshop and then checking off the box and saying that you are now trauma-informed, whether it's for your teachers or, or principals. It, it's an ongoing process of learning and growing and sometimes, you know, trying things and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but that's how we develop our experience and find what works best. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's, it is about personal improvement. It's about personal growth and getting better. And you and I have both seen teachers who've had zero trauma-informed training and are trauma-informed educators, right? So Absolutely. it's not about attending a specific training. I believe it's about having a mindset and a belief system that you can continuously learn and adapt and meet the needs of the people who are in front of you rather than you know, adopting a system or something like that. Absolutely. It is a mindset. It is an approach. So it's not just a program that you drop in, like you said. So trauma-informed, according to SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, they're part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and their mission is to uh, lead public health efforts to um, advanced behavioral health 
of the nation, essentially. So SAMHSA has a very well-known definition for trauma-informed care that includes four pieces. They're, they're referred to as a, the four R's. So the first is to realize that you need to realize about trauma and how it affects people in groups. So that's a piece of being trauma-informed. The second piece is that you need to develop recognition of the signs of trauma. So the second R there is to recognize. The third R is to respond, including having responsive systems in place when you recognize and realize trauma has happened. And then the fourth R, according to SAMHSA, is that we need to resist re-traumatization in what we do. Yeah, that's good. And and that is certainly helpful to to give people an understanding of what that is. I appreciate that. So you talked about, we talked a little bit about students. Let's talk a little bit about staff and what that looks like. That's one of the other areas to pay attention to. Absolutely. So when we're looking at staff, we have to under knows, uh, understand and in a trauma-informed way, realize about how trauma impacts people. And that includes the teachers too. So when we have staff coming into the building and they're there to do their best for kids, we have to be tuned into and be able to recognize signs perhaps of their own trauma, especially when it starts to interfere with what they're doing with the students. Yeah. And recognize their own trauma and then also give them tools to be supported as well. And that is easier said than done sometimes. And sometimes that's very challenging to know how to support someone who's struggling with that and how to how to make them feel safe and be able to respond to that. Um, so let's talk about some of those systems uh, that we can put in place also. So systems encompass a whole lot of things. Many of them are based in culture. What is the culture of the building like? What is the culture of the school district like? And how do we engage in things like approaches to trauma-sensitive teaching and trauma-informed care? So culture is a huge piece. Looking at systems of how do we evaluate our staff? As principals, we need to be evaluating our staff and there are, there are trauma-sensitive ways to do that. And one of which is being able to find somebody where they're at and then add value or encourage their growth to the next step um, in an encouraging way. Other systems have to do with discipline. Like what do we do with discipline? What are our systems and our processes for managing discipline in schools? And what kinds of school well-being activities are happening in the environment, not only just for the kids, but for the staff as well. So like you said, that they can support one another and the leaders can support the staff and they can really feel the opportunity to be connected. Yeah. So how important is it to adjust these systems to what we're currently facing? I mean, a lot of, a lot of schools want to, bring in a program and, you know, implement it with fidelity, quote unquote. Um, does that work as it relates to trauma-informed practices? You know, I think that we look for 
for programs for teachers because there is some merit to having some content that stays consistent that everyone can build a common language around that could be easily maintained over time as new staff come in to to share that understanding so you know programs are a part of that but it's the approach in how we implement those programs whatever the programs are how we implement those what the approach is really can be more trauma-informed or it can be less trauma-informed. Yeah. And it can be more, more successful or less successful. And that's something that I've seen where we have implemented things with Fidelity that were really not good for the people who were involved in it. And they were research-based and they, and they were nice and they worked but they they left out the humanity of the people that were involved and and this is something that in a in a highly trauma impacted school adopting scripted programs specifically made it more traumatizing for the kids mm-hmm. because the teachers and for the teachers too the teachers felt like they couldn't deviate from the scripted program which means that they couldn't take the time they needed to deal with the kids that were right there in front of them. And I think you need to be really cautious as you're implementing those things that you are doing what's right for the people there rather than doing what's right for the program. You know, the publisher, the creator of that program has never been in your school and never experienced mm-hmm. what you've experienced. So you can't rely on them to know what the right thing to do is. Is that too controversial of you, Elaine? No, it is not too controversial because when you look at a bigger picture, you have those programs that are, you know can come and go in classrooms that are content or curriculum based. That's one piece. But the more important pieces are another two P's. Not only the program you have, but the process, which is how you're going about utilizing those programs. Are you allowing for teachers to make decisions and have some autonomy to really accommodate and adjust for the students they do have in front of them? So the process is just as important. And then the third P in that that model, we've got the programs, we've got processes, and the most important piece is the people, right? It, it's, not, it's not ever really in the end about the program. It's really about the people and the humanity, like you mentioned earlier, to stop and recognize and realize, respond to what's in front of you, and then be able to resist that re-traumatization that can happen in some forced implementation of a program that someone found interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Well, Elaine, I think this is all really great. Um, If people are interested in the work that I do around trauma, you can go to resilientschools.com. Elaine, where can people learn more about you and the work that you do? Well, they're welcome to um, go to my website at elaineharper.com. And that's a hub where I include my blog and upcoming trainings, workshops, white papers that have been written and other information. And there's also a way there that people can contact me by email directly as well. I'd love to talk to people. Yeah. And I, 
I have gotten to know you over the past few months, and you are a delightful, wonderful human being. And if anybody is interested in this stuff, I would definitely reach out and learn from you um, because you have so much wisdom, you have so much experience, and I feel like I'm smarter just for knowing you. Uh, Jethro, um, I'm humbled by your kind words, and I actually feel the same about you. So we've got a good mutual admiration society going between us. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> so my very last question I'd like to ask you before we sign off today is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Focus in on relationships. Focusing on the relationships with your staff, paying attention to facilitating the relationships among the staff, and keeping those healthy relationships with students in the entire school community. In, in the end, to me, it comes down to those positive, genuine, authentic relationships. Yeah, I absolutely agree. All right. Well, thank you, Elaine, for being part of Resilient Schools. Once again, go to elaineharper.com for more information about her and the work that she provides. And thank you for being a part of Resilient Schools today. Thank you so much for having me, Jethro.